Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. Hello, welcome to the Askell Leadership Podcast, our first of 2018. This one is about leadership of schools and colleges in all its different forms. We've got Gemma Fairclough talking about what it's like to be a primary head within a multi-academy trust. And you've got Sean Carr and Richard Sheriff talking about what it's like to move from being a head teacher or principal into an executive role and the opportunities that gives to be more of a coach and mentor. We talk also to Ian Fenn, who gives an extraordinary account of community leadership in Manchester, and Grace Marriott, a speaker at our primary conference, talking about the importance of paying attention to children's mental health with some really practical advice on that. Nick Chambers is here as well from Education and Employers, talking about a survey they've undertaken, which looks at what is it that leads children to choose the career they want in the future. And then a well-known name to many people, Sir John Rowling of the Pixel Club, talks about Pixel, but also reflects a little bit about his life as a head teacher in the past. So, something for everyone, I hope. Hope you enjoy this month's Leadership Podcast. I'm Gemma Fairclough, and I'm the head teacher of Skinner's Kent Primary School. Now, tell us a bit about the school. Tell us about the context, first mm-hmm. of all. So, we opened up in 2015. We opened as the um, primary school in addition in the multi-academy trust of Skinner's Kent Academy. Um, we, it has a long history of the, the main academy changing over time. They've done rapid improvements, so it's kind of, for us, quite an exciting venture to be the first primary. Um, we're part of the Skinner's Company of Schools. They've never sponsored a primary school for, like before, so we are that first, first ever school. And tell us, who, who, who are the Skinner's Company of Schools? Um, so they are one of the 12, uh, well, one of the original 12 livery companies in London. They have seven schools currently and their reputation of schools is fantastic. So it's quite a kind of a strong heritage to have for a school. And what, what do parents think of that? I mean, what, what do you gain out of that? And what parents particularly feel they gain from that uh, tradition? Mm-hmm. Um, parents particularly, it's the reputation of the schools. Um, they see it as having high aspirations. They see the culture and the heritage as being a real asset. You know, our children get to see people dressed up in their furs on a daily, you know, kind of, they, they really do seem passionate about education and schools. And that filters down into kind of into us as the primary. And so this is a brand new primary. It's got, mm-hmm. been around about three years, something yes. like that, yeah. And you're there as the head, mm-hmm. uh, and you're working with an executive head as well. Kind of talk, talk about what your role is and what do you gain from working with somebody who's had longer experience? Yeah. So my role is the day-to-day life of the school, um, and Sean, the executive principal, her role is the kind of strategic vision of the multi academy trust. What I benefit from is in my first headship, I benefit from a mentor that's extremely kind of experienced, but not somebody that's hierarchical. You know, it's not tell you, you know, do what I say. You know, we work together and she she ensures that I'm learning to become kind of the best head teacher I possibly can. And I think that's something that doesn't happen very often in your first headship, but actually I get that that model and the support across the whole of the Academy Trust as well. Would you have gone for the job without someone in that role? No, without a doubt. I'm, I'm very early on in my headship career and it, headship wasn't something that I initially was aspiring to do. Um, because of having kind of that role of the executive principal, it gave me the confidence to step into those headship shoes but know that I've kind of got that safety net behind me that, and somebody to look kind of up to as well. Yeah, and how does that work? Does it does it mean on a day to day basis, you and Sean are having conversations, or is it less frequent like that, or is it just not 
possible to predict it? It's it's really just responsive to the time and the place and what we need. Um, so sometimes it's daily, other times it's weekly. We always touch base once a week, whether it's a quick email to say, all OK. Um, but that's the model that we've built up. It's, you know, we want to have professional dialogue all the time, but also, you know, it's great that I can support her. You know, there's elements of primary that she wasn't aware of and we're working together. So it's, it's not, you know, that I pull upon her all the time. You know, we support each other. Gemma, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Shankar, Executive Principal, Skinner's Kent Academy. Let's start off just by talking about your academy because it's in a pretty distinctive context, isn't it, there in Kent? So just give us the flavour of that. Um, Kent is obviously a selective uh, local authority um, and in West Kent we're what's known as either highly or super selective. Um, all great schools, all fantastic schools, um, you know, mix of grammar schools, faith schools, uh, single set schools uh, and non-selective schools. So, But there is a predominance, uh, particularly in West Kent, of, of selection. And what I love about the way you always talk about Tunbridge Wells is, A, I think you're going to tell us in a minute, it's, it's not the stereotypical world that sometimes is portrayed in the lettuce page of the Telegraph and so on, uh, which is important. But but you always then praise the other schools that are there, but you're, you're doing something distinctive for parents here, so kind of talk us through all of that. Um, yes, T- Tunbridge Wells, I mean, I don't actually live there myself, but Tunbridge Wells is, uh, is a great place, and, um, you know, it has a, and has always had excellent education provision, but what was missing was that for um, all ability, you know, beyond the 11 plus and, uh, and, and the faith schools, all of which, as you absolutely rightly say, I always say, what fantastic schools they are but that opportunity to have a, an all ability uh, educational provision was at the heart of and is at the heart of the work that I'm doing in Tunbridge Wells. But what you what you've essentially done is to take a school which was not highly regarded originally and you've done some interesting things which have made it very highly regarded and very very well judged in terms of officers so what, what was the kind of journey through that? Um, it's a journey of, of belief um, and confidence um, you know in terms of the young people they hadn't been believed in. They hadn't, uh, didn't have self-confidence, um, and and it is about uh, working with them and and the adults that work with them to grow that self-confidence, to grow that belief in their ability uh, to achieve, uh, to, to broaden their horizons. We brought in the international baccalaureate, which everybody said that's a mad thing to do. They can't do that. Well, of course they can, uh, and I don't mean you know the diploma program. I'm talking about the middle years program. We've got a primary school, the primary years program. Career-related program in Sitzman, which is a fantastic vocational academic program. So, trying to lift horizons uh, and 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 raise those aspirations in those young people, and really importantly, a sustainable model of change, a sustainable model of transformation, not one where you just kind of you're helicoptered in and you do a few things that kind of make a difference for a moment in time. This is about long-term sustainable uh, sort of provision uh, that, that then finishes and completes all of the provision in Tunbridge Wells so everybody's got choice, genuine choice. We're talking and Ofsted is talking, everybody's talking about curriculum provision at the moment and there's probably a generation of people, actually they might be heads of English and heads of department, who largely think the curriculum is something prescribed from the centre. They might not have heard that IB could be something which you could be doing in the middle years. So, so why has that been so important? What has that done which you couldn't do previously? Well, the interesting thing about the IB, and everybody goes, oh, it's either too expensive to run or all those kinds of things. I mean, I would say just look at it and think about it in terms of investment. 
Um, it is distinct, and that was one of the early uh, thinkings around it, but also it's transfer transformation in terms of thinking about teaching as well as learning, um, because it's it's an inquiry-based, it's it's a framework for a curriculum. Um, we, we sit the GCSEs within it. Uh, it's got some curriculum, uh, I suppose, sort of those old-fashioned kind of cross-curricular themes in it, really, going back to the good old days. Um, <laughs> but it's also probably one of the things I love about it, and it goes through four to 19, is the IB Learner Profile, which is the 10 attributes that you would l want young people to uh, leave their full-time education with and take into the world. Uh, and they imbue all of our curriculum planning and, and the work we do, uh, not just the taught curriculum, beyond as well. What kind of things are they? And it's like risk taking. It's about being knowledgeable. It's being about open minded. Um, it's being about balanced and so forth. So all of those attributes, those characteristics, that actually in this world that we live in these days, you really would like our young people to 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 develop uh, and to make them not just citizens of our our uh, our world as it is now, um, you know, our country as it were, but of the world and breaking down those barriers, which I think we see in society uh, and in our current, uh, current, current world, uh, are real concerns uh, to me for, our, for the next generation. Yeah, no, it's very optimistic. Last, last question. You'll, you'll be known, I think, for, for a number of things. You'll be known for your work with the National College, you'll be known for the headship you had in Essex, I think I recall, for your presidency in ASCO, which was about the next generation of leaders and how we develop them. So it's interesting to listen to how con you continue on that mission with those schools you're Con you're continuing to work with to make sure you're thinking about the sustainability and the future of that but you've also changed your role from principal your executive principal now and lots of people will be listening thinking what does that mean what's it like i mean what's what are the, what are the benefits of that P personally for you what are you enjoying about it i mean it's enabled me to step out in, a, in order for others to step up which is some of the work we did at the national college when we were looking at succession planning uh, and i think that's really important if you're going to genuinely develop the next generation of school leaders you've got to allow them to step up so executive principle allows you to step out quite hard sometimes it's, you know you like you like the hands-on bit as well so you do have to do that uh, and you have to be strong about it but it's also about working with and I really mean with um, those uh, you know the principals the head teachers that you're you know that are that are running the schools on a day-to-day -day basis working with them in order that um, they yeah they might make mistakes but that you're there to to, to work alongside them to pick up the pieces if necessary but to coach to mentor to 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 be alongside really so that they can get used to it before perhaps they're you know fully on their own and, and, and off they go so so I think to me it's about that um, and for I think also it's, it's in enabling me to play a, a more significant role in the broader system as well so I think it has the two things but you never ever 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 forget about the young people at the heart of it mm. and that's the great joy and it doesn't mean you have to step away from them I walk around uh, both schools and I still have great joy in talking to and engaging with the young people that is always at the heart of it my name's Ian Fenn, the head teacher at Burnage Academy for Boys in Manchester. Now tell us a little bit about uh, Burnage Academy for Boys. What kind of school is it? Um, it's an all-boys school, as the title suggests, 11 to 16, and we serve the Longsite, Leventium, Moss Side, the, the inner city part of Manchester. Um, virtually everyone in the school um, is of a minority ethnic heritage, 
Um, we have some white children, but they make up less than 9% of the population. And you've been there a long time, haven't you? You, you represent kind of longevity in headship. So what, what, what is it about that school that's made you want to, to continue to work there for so long? Um, I think once you, you find somewhere where you can make a difference or you think you can make a difference and where there's always something left to be done and where there's, there's, there's you know, a never-ending journey, then, then why leave it? Why go on to something else? Why... You know, I, I couldn't see the point of trying to go to a so-called better school. I didn't want one. I wanted to work where it makes a difference. And I think the main reason I stayed there was had some really good people with me. And therefore, we could, we could make a difference because you can't do it on your own. You have to have um, people who, you know, share the vision. And I think the funniest thing, a few years ago, I said to Jackie, my senior deputy, you know, have I changed the vi- vision at Burnage since I've been here? And she scoffed at me. Um, you know, I knew she would because she's good at scoffing. And she just said, no, you, you, you've just, you know, given it some legs. And I think that's so lucky if when you find a place where what you believe sits in with what the school, the values of the school, then you've found your home. You know, and and I had if if my values hadn't fitted in with the school, I'm sure I would have left. Um, but because it was a it was a right fit, um, I've been there, and I'll be there till till I finish. How long have you been there? Seventeen years. Yeah, I remember talking to you in the summer. There'd been the terrible mm. arena bombing, yes. uh, uh, and to say it just affected Manchester isn't true. It affected uh, lots, lots of bits of the UK, but Manchester, of course, was the epicentre of it. And your school, I remember talking to you mm. about what you were doing, what you were saying to those boys of yours uh, who were coming into school every day, and then they were going home. Mm. Just think back and give us a flavour of the of the kind of leadership you, that, that was demanded of you in those very, very difficult circumstances. It's very clear, you know, it doesn't take a lot of working out. You've got children who, uh, some of whom are from the same community as the, as the bomber. Um, there are rumours rushing round um, within the community, um, all of which exaggerate what's going on. Um, and you ask any of the children and immediately they are afraid. They're scared, they want reassurance, they want to know they have a place in this society, they want to know they're going to be kept safe, they want to know that this nightmare is, is actually not um, going to uh, turn out as, as they think it, as they fear it might. So you have to reassure them, you have to um, compensate for the fact that their communities have been invaded by the press who are interested in nothing except their next byline. And then you have to get through to the, to the parents because you'll find what we found was that the, the Libyan community was absolutely under siege. And we had parents who were crying because they were being moved from hotel to hotel. They couldn't go back to their homes. Um, people had been arrested here, there and everywhere, but then released. You know, because they, they quite understandably, the, the authorities were, were trying to find out what was going on. And you have to go, you know, to every known associate. But the impact on the community, on the children was, was huge. And we're the only service that's there that, that can, can um, reassure them, um, let them know that they have a place, um, that they are going to be safe. And, and also try to encourage them to respond in the right way. 
because the, one of the things that I was afraid of was that um, people who really want to take advantage of any kind of unrest um, would stir the pot. So we were worried about outsiders coming to the school, um, trying to goad our boys. We were worried about our boys being attacked. I mean, there was a 29% increase in hate crime, reported hate crime, this last year, and it doubled in Manchester in the days after the after the um, attack, and that's reported hate crime. And there were plenty of people, I know of several, um, who were the victims of hate crime and didn't bother reporting it. And, you know, we have to reassure the boys. And what I, I remember saying to the boys, um, you know, um, I asked them, has anything happened to you since the bombing? This was the next day or the day after. And the hand would go up and, yes, this old lady on the bus told me that I was a terrorist and, and, and you know, this is a real case. And so I said to, said to the lad, I said, right, that's terrible. Um, how many people didn't say that to you? And you could see the penny drop. You know, oh, uh, oh, it's most of them, yeah. So we had another set of lads who had a, a white van pull up next to them and all sorts of horrible things shouted at them. And I said to the lads, how many cars didn't do that? And once they got that sense of perspective, um, then, then you could see them calming and realising that this society, which is by and large very caring and inclusive compared to anywhere else I know in the world, still was in spite of what had happened. And the whole one Manchester thing um, um, was, was a blessing because it was a, a very public face, even though, um, you know, it was short-lived really and it's... it's it, you know, it's not as um, visceral as you'd want it to be. Um, it's not systemic. It's, it's, it's also almost like um, a trend, you know, people getting tattoos. But at least they were getting tattoos with B on rather than sort of um, hate tattoos. Mm. So you can't knock what essentially was an outpouring of, of, dare I say it, you know, love for each other as opposed to hate. So that was important. And... And it was our role to make sure that we took the boys on that journey so they would keep that sense of perspective, which, you know, I'm 60, I think I'm 62, and it's hard for me to keep a sense of perspective. 16, what chance have you got? 14, when you've had your front door blown off, your mum dragged out, not allowed to put a headscarf on. I mean, how are they going to keep a sense of perspective? And, you know, and we are tracking those boys. We're supporting them even today. I mean, I just got... I had to go out for a phone call today because that was one of my staff reassuring me that the check that I'd asked them to do had been done and that the boy was OK. And so it's, we're in it for the long term and I'm hoping somehow to keep touch with them when they've gone. In fact, they've started this... They're starting this week um, a Foundation for Peace thing to help those Libyan boys. Just bespoke programme for them. Ian, amazing uh, leadership of the school, but also community leadership. Thank you. Thanks for talking. You're very welcome, Jeff. So I'm Grace Barrett and I am co-founder of the Self-Esteem Team. Uh, we travel all over the UK working with parents, teachers and students on mental health, body image and self-esteem. Uh, 
from 8 all the way up to 18 years old. And what's your background then? Uh, I'm a singer by trade, I'm a musician, um, but I really struggled with my confidence when I was younger and struggled with mental health issues as I got older. So went through my own therapy and learned a few things along the way. Um, nowadays, the classes that we have created look at some of the therapies that we learned when we were younger, but also we consult with psychologists and doctors to make sure that all of the classes are really sound as well. I was really interested in what you said, uh, partly because it doesn't matter what type of school somebody works in, everybody's talking about mental health. Yeah. I mean, it is the big issue, I think, which yeah. is facing us. Um, so in terms of some of the insights and some of the things which, which every teacher and every teaching assistant, every member of staff could do, just kind of talk us through how we get this onto everyone's awareness. So I think the, the biggest thing for us is understanding that mental health uh, is really important for everyone because everybody has a brain, right? So even if you're not struggling with a mental health issue, you still have a mental health, um, which means that teachers need to be aware of it for themselves and also aware of mental health for their students um, and helping them manage that. We like to think at Self-Esteem Team that if you can sort of drip feed or pepper into your day-to-day -day interactions, conversations around mental health, then we're going to start to see a real change with people being easily able to ask for help and support if they need it. But even if they don't need that help and support, they have an understanding of what mental health is, what it is to them and how it affects the world around them. That's what struck me actually, because as soon as you start saying everyone needs an awareness of mental health, some some people kind of shy away, thinking, oh, well, that's you know technical, specialist medical issue. But actually, what you were doing was framing it in terms of the way we say well done to people or things we like about people. I mean, give us a flavour of the, those kind of very practical, tangible ideas. Yeah. So we're all interacting every single day with each other which means we're all affecting each other's mental health because every interaction we have has an impact on our brains and our emotions um, so thinking about whether we applaud people for achievement or whether we applaud people for the way that they look is really important we often all stand around scratching our heads asking why students are so stressed out about exams but every compliment they've been given for the past six seven years has been about whether they did well on a piece of work or whether they got an, a good result on a test so of course they attribute that result to their sense of belonging and purpose in the world and value um, so if we start to change those little conversations then what we say to young people um, which which is often it doesn't matter whether you get A's we often say that just try your best but the compliments we give them day to day don't match up with that concept so we can't expect them to to latch onto those kind of uh, those conversations that happen every now and then, they're going to latch onto the stuff that they hear every single day. Yeah, also I, I started the day just talking about the, there's a report by the Children's Commissioner in which, which she's done is to write something called A Life in Likes, Life in Likes yes. it's called. Uh, and essentially what we're seeing is young people whose whole sense of who they are is being mediated by how many people like them or how many people retweet them. Mm. And what you're essentially doing is to say this is a very human interaction. It's about the way we look at each other, talk to each other. Yeah. And teachers are critical in that, aren't they? Absolutely, because those you can't exchange the relationships that you have online for uh, relationships that you have in the real world unless the relationships that you have in the real world aren't fulfilling. And then you will look for that relationship online to fill that void. If those relationships are fulfilling, if we're getting the help, support, guidance, that we need from people around us in the flesh day to day then online community becomes less important mm. uh, finally grace just re remind us the name of the organization and where we can find it we are self-esteem team and you can find us at www.selfesteemteam.org
Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm Nick Chambers. I'm the chief executive of a charity called Education and Employers. So tell us what Education and Employers does. Uh, We're in the business of connecting volunteers from the world of work with schools. It's really about inspiring kids, giving kids the chance to meet a whole range of people doing different jobs. People from different backgrounds who've taken different routes in their life, people who've maybe been to university or not gone to university, started their own business, done an apprenticeship, uh, from all sorts of sectors. We have from apps designers to zoologists, and we have from apprentices, uh, recently graduate, graduated uh, students, through to chief exec, chairman, and ministers. We have all levels and all sectors uh, just going in and just chatting to kids and answering their questions about what what's their job really like, what's involved. And you've got a report coming out, haven't you, um, tomorrow, which is showing why this is uh, so important. What, 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 in a sense, is that report telling us? Uh, that is a report of, uh, in this country, 13,000 children aged 7 to 13. It's a very simple idea. We've asked them to draw what they want to be, but we've then asked other information, what's their favourite school subject, and more importantly, why have they drawn that job? Do they know anyone who does that job? Uh, or if not, how have they heard about it? So this survey, the biggest of its type ever, and it's a, it's a global survey uh, with 20 other countries participating, is showing for the first time at scale the impact of the old it's who you know and the impact is uh, if you grow up in a very affluent part of the country, the role models around you tend to be affluent and very professional. As you grow up in a more disadvantaged community, you often don't have those role models and we're saying if we're really serious about improving social mobility in this country one thing we need to do is to allow children the chance to meet role models and to do so from a very young age so they just think it's normal to be a solicitor or be a doctor or be a nurse or go to university or start a fashion business or you know open a restaurant these things are just what normal people do and the range of things you know because those kids People often say children in, you know, deprived schools have very low aspirations. I don't actually think that's true. A lot of children have very high aspirations. Uh, often, however, they're very narrow, you know, and because that's all they see. And so if, if I'm a school or college leader, whether I'm in Blackpool or Stoke-on-Trent or Brighton or wherever I might be, and I'm interested in some, some people coming in and talking to the children in my school, so, so where do I start? Uh, just go online, go to uh, either our main charity, which is called Education and Employers, or go to uh, Inspiring the Future, which is this massive database of volunteers. Uh, we currently have... Uh, just short of 40,000 volunteers. We have volunteers in every uh, local authority in the UK. Certain areas we have more than others. But, you know, if you don't find what you're looking for, you know, you just get on the phone to our office and then we'll see if we can find someone for you. The majority of the service is self-service and that means it's very scalable. But, yeah, we do certain things in particular areas where uh, school phones have said, look, we're really trying to help. Do you know anyone? And then we'll email all the people we know in that area and saying do you know anyone it's a way of schools connecting and you can get people in to give career insights we've got 11,000 people for instance who will do a mock interview it's very important if you want to go to university or an apprenticeship or get your first job 
They do this in the independent sector really well. Why shouldn't we do the same thing for state schools, give them the same kids, you know, whether it's giving feedback on the CV, whether it's people who can do modern foreign languages, who might be lawyers or translators or airline pilots or bankers, talking about why modern foreign language is an exciting subject to study or why art or design or history or English you know, why those subjects are exciting to children. So you just go on, you browse this massive database, teachers choose who they're interested in, and as well as volunteers in the classroom, you can now also find people who want to be governors. You go on and you see the profile of people interested because people have filled in their little skill set to match the governing body skill set. You search the people, you come up with a shortlist as if you were going online shopping and you choose, you know, three pairs of shoes and then you decide, I'm going to, you know, either get this particular one or you buy, you know, you send a message out and you invite three volunteers to come in. Particularly for a governor, you might meet three people with financial skills and then they decide if they like you and you decide if you like them and then one of them might join your governing body. But it's very important that it is school-led. Thank you, Chambers. Thank you. Um, I am Richard Sheriff, and my role is executive head teacher and CEO of the Red Kite Learning Trust. And you have a role with Askell, of course. So tell us what that is. I do indeed. This year I'm vice president, and next year I'm extremely privileged to be um, president of Askell. Yeah, well, congratulations, Richard. Now, I had the pleasure of coming and visiting your school. It's called Harrogate Grammar School, it's a comprehensive school in Harrogate, part of a larger entity. G- give us the flavour both of the school and the trust. Yeah, Harrow Grammar School is a school with a, a long tradition uh, dating back to before the First World War. Um, but it became a comprehensive school back in the 1970s and it's a very proud comprehensive tradition now we're in a very eclectic mix of students but as part of a trust a red kite learning trust we have another five schools in the trust one more secondary in Pudsey in South Leeds and four local primaries so it's quite a diverse partnership that's now growing further and and then you've got this uh, extraordinary um, teaching school alliance I mean the scale of that was unimaginable to me so trying to talk us to not, not just what it is but how it's developed because it's quite an interesting approach you've got there. Yeah, the alliance came from uh, relationships between head teachers and schools and a need, uh, it was just over 10 years ago now, actually, the local school saying, look, wouldn't it be really good to work together on a slightly deeper level and have a partnership? And that started off with two or three schools and has now grown to our 17 secondaries and 26 primaries that are part of the Red Kite Teaching School Alliance. And it's a genuinely collaborative affair. It really is. Um, sometimes it is, for me, as I was appointing our director, uh, and I am a genuine servant to the Alliance, and my job is herding cats, really. Um, but there are a fantastic group of head teachers and staff who work together with some shared values. One of those, which is professional generosity shown to each other. And, and that is shown all the time. Just yesterday, a head teacher wrote an email to the Alliance head and said, I've got a new exams officer, really quite nervous about what's coming up. Anybody help? Within about half an hour, he had four offers of gen- not people just would pass by, but would come and sit with the exam and look after them. And it's that kind of very on the ground support that the Alliance offers. And this year, on July the 6th, we do our kind of every two years, we do a big event, the Red Kind uh, Day. 
and we'll have nearly 1,400 uh, school colleagues in there. Uh, amazing presenter, somebody called Jeff Barton's uh-huh. coming to speak to me. Well, that's certainly one of my favourites. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but that's the and it, every two years we do that, um, and it's a way of bringing energy to the partnership and actually cementing the relationships and network and sustaining it during the year. And what the what's been fantastic is that history of, of partnership and that high trust collaboration. It really is based on tr- a lot of trust that we work at has then kind of segued into some of us working in that even closer way as part of a trust. So it, it, it's a, an evolution rather than We haven't suddenly become a trust and look out to get schools. We've actually, some of those schools said, look, we, we could really need to be tighter together. What about the idea of being a trust? Let's work that through. It also provides a safety net for the alliance schools. If anything goes wrong, the trust is there. So we've been working that now for the last nearly two and a half years, and that's been a, a new set of challenges, but a further development of kind of the work underpinned by exactly the same values that have successfully sustained our partnership for the last 10 years. Yeah, and that's what struck me so much about it, is he's very much from the ground up, and that notion of tr- trust in nature as well, trust in name, was very, very striking. Why, why is it called uh, Red Kite? Ah, well, the Red Kite uh, got its name uh, because the first ever conference we did, Red Kite Day 1, so to speak, when there was only, I think, four schools at the time, was, was held at Harwood House, just outside Leeds, who were very generous and gave us their facilities. Um, and we were there, one of my colleagues, the teacher school coordinator, Sue Lewis, a very creative person, we spotted that the, the, the Harwood House had a bird garden. And it's where they'd actually taken the red kite, which was extinct in Yorkshire, had been hunted and, and poisoned to extinction. They brought it back and nurtured it back to life. So now the red kite flies right across the area, and thankfully it flies across all our schools. So we thought, oh, what a great symbol of the power of people to work to actually nurture and support something back to life. A great symbol. So that became our symbol, the red kite. Last question. You, uh, just walking around the, the school with you last week, you... you conducted yourself like lots of us kind of in one sense old school heads you know the students very well you know the staff very well you love working with them but you've stepped into a different role now chief executive and I've heard you say before you that that felt an uncomfortable title to you in the early days and yet when I listen and watch what you do I can absolutely see how it's a stepping stone on from headship so in in your early phase of being a chief executive just give us a flavor of what it is you do yeah, it's, it is very much development. There's some new skills there. There's, you know, head teachers, many of us have got a good idea about visions uh, and the vision of a complex trust that supports everybody, that really works in terms of every child is a great vision. But actually putting that into practice, executing that vision is some new skills, operationally, financially, logistically, having to learn. But the other part to it, which is it's about relationships, about people and about children. So the best part of the job has been nurturing or supporting and being supported, actually, by the head teachers across. I have been literally trained in primary education by Cheryl, one of our local primaries, has been taking me through every stage. And I really enjoy seeing new heads, new to the profession coming through and giving them the kind of hopefully the benefit of some long years of experience. But they bring energy, freshness, ideas. So hopefully it's a it's a it's a good relationship. That bit has been exciting, really has. But it's also, it gives me the impression it's kind of rejuvenated you in a sense, that we we all get to a phase in terms of headship of thinking, right, what do I do next? Do I need to go to another school? This is a different approach, which actually has added a new kind of strain of creativity and also mentoring into your life, hasn't it? Uh, Yeah, very much so. I've been a a head for 16 years now. And after a while, as you might say to other heads of that kind of longer the tooth, they say that the next school development plan perhaps is starting to feel not quite as exciting as the first one. Um, 
And actually, this, this is a whole new set of challenges, and it is really challenging. I mean, really challenging. And, you know, and I think that, that's good. And I think, I think we've still got, as experienced heads, something to give. Uh, and I think going into headship now as a new head is very different than when I started all those years ago. I think it was a safer place to be then. It might not have felt so, but now it's a high-risk place. And if you've got the kind of tutelage and mentorage of, of a you know, part of that organisation, that's a better place to be. I would want that now. And it doesn't take away authority of head teachers. I want our head teachers to really feel complete responsible for their schools and have the freedom to be able to do special and interesting stuff, but also have that safety net and have that support from experienced heads around them. Richard Cherry, thank you very much. My name is John Rowling and I am founder director of Pixel Partners in Excellence, working with 1,700 secondary schools and 600 primaries and 556 forms and 70 proofs. Let's just go back to your life in schools. Yes. To talk, talk to us about what your memories of being a head teacher. Yes, I was a head teacher for 19 years in Nunthorpe School and uh, uh, I never ever looked in the Times Education Supplement at the weekend. Never looked for in the job. Because I was so happy doing what I was doing. And it was, uh, to be honest, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. I, I didn't know where it was all going, but I knew I wanted the best for kids, and I sort of learned as I did it, you know, how, how it was. Um, but the standards, the results rose quite dramatically um, in the school, and that was a great joy, of course, because it opens doors for, for young people. And as far as Pixel's concerned, what happened was the DFE um, either invited people to the office here, the DFE, or DFES, it was called then, if they were good, and if they weren't very good, and not quite as good, they would send somebody out to see you. Well, I was in the second category. They sent somebody out to see Did me. They? They? Yeah. And when they'd been there for uh, an hour or two, they said, would you like to come and work for us? Uh, so I said, no, not really, but when I finish, I would like to talk to you. What do you have in mind? And so we'd like you to work on raising standards in schools through the London Challenge. So that's how it all started, Pixel. Um, arose out of that visit really. When you say kind of blithely uh, and results rose, that you, you, know, you make it sound like that just happened, but one of the things I remember, because I was sent by the Times Ed your book, yeah. uh, which was a, a, a way ahead of its time in terms of talking about how you use data to motivate yeah, children absolutely. to monitor, and that's where we got this notion of the key marginals, that absolutely. children would make absolutely. a big difference. So what kind of things were you doing with, uh, in that time which allowed you, A, well, to raise interesting, standards, but B, you, you, you were kind of reinventing your headship yeah, as well? it was a learning process for me because we had an issue, we were doing okay, nobody was on our back, but boys were seriously underperforming girls. That was a 17% 17 gap between boys and girls. And, and I, I said, I got the faculty heads together and said, look, do we believe boys are 70% weaker than girls? Seriously. I mean, they might be. Do you believe that? And they said, no, we don't. And I said, what's the problem then? What are we doing wrong? And, and I did an experiment. It was off the cuff. I gave, them a bit, sorry, sorry. I gave them a bit of paper and I said, right on there, you've got 30 seconds. What you like about boys? And it was embarrassing actually to watch senior leaders in school struggle writing down what they liked about boys it was so embarrassing that they felt it and, and after 30 seconds they said okay stop there now write down what you like about girls and they couldn't put the pen down you know it was uh, and it was so in your face that everybody said this is not right is it we don't actually as professionals know what we like about boys not when you put us on the spot like that 
So I said, look, let's do an experiment. Let's try and work out what, in what ways boys are different to girls. We've been to all the courses, but come on, we're professionals. So let's work it out. We worked out four things that we thought boys, how boys learned. And we said, look, let's do an experiment. So I said, give me 22 names of kids who won't get five A to C's, all of whom are boys. And I will work them for a year and we'll see what happens. <laughs> and I'll work on these principles. So they did that. 22 boys, not going to get five A to C as it was in those days. At the end of the year, 19 of them got five A to C's. All on the back of working on these particular focused things. And we said, if we can be focused like that, and it has that effect on 22, why can't it have that effect on others at the margins, where you could move from one position to another, they're no more important than anybody else, but if you can move from X to Y, and we know what you've got to do it, it's our fault if it's not happening, because we're the professionals here. And too often we've told kids what they're supposed to do, We've even had the nerve to tell parents sometimes what they're supposed to do, but we rarely told them what we were going to do. So that's what we did. And encouraged by the first year of 22, it developed into what now have become the fundamental Pixel principles. Sort of stumbled on it, really. I think that Pixel is in some ways easily caricatured. There'll be people yeah. who don't, don't quite understand what Pixel is. And we've been at an event which I've, I've come to specifically. I was in London and I wanted to be here for it called Them and Us. Just, just give us a flavour of what the, the Them and Us dimension is. The Them and Us dimension is uh, about the fact, the simple fact, that all of us live in a society and some of us think the society we live in is struggling at the minute in terms of relationships. You see it every day. I know it gets caricatured on the news and sometimes exaggerated, but we see it in our own schools. There are conflicts that ought not to be there because there's a lack of understanding about living without harming others, about showing respect to others and what that means, and about doing acts of kindness to others. And we postulate that you will never stop there being a them and us culture. We are forced into them and us situations. But it's how we handle the them and us situations that is issue and needs to be specifically taught around common values of humanity. Not British values, I have nothing wrong with that, actually it's not British values, because some people we do with aren't British. They're part of a them culture that isn't British. And we have to learn how to handle that in a humanitarian way. Non-religious, non-political. So it's about living without harming others, because that must be right. Now I know some people, um, philosophically and the extremes, theologically, don't go with that, but that's not the majority by any means. We're dealing with 95% of the people who can learn to live together in a way that will enhance their lives and enable them to live their lives happily and positively. That's what we're trying to do. And, and that is in addition to getting them the best results you possibly can, because that's the bedrock of it, and teaching them how to be the best people they can be. But I sat on the stage there now, Jeff, just thinking, the only thing we have in education at the moment that I know of that is a win-win is this. With currency, we've got comparable outcomes. If I win, sorry, you lose. Everyone who goes up, somebody goes down. For character, it gives me the edge when I'm interviewed against you. That's nice for me, but it's not so good for you. Them and us is better for everybody. There are no losers. Everybody wins. That's why we should all be in it.
<laughs> As always, John, it's always about values. Absolutely it? about yeah, values. Exactly Thank you. The Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. 